0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Naomi Smith. We hope you've enjoyed our climate specials so far this week. If you've missed any, be sure to check them out wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the phrase net zero has become increasingly common in our discussions surrounding climate change. And it means the balance between the amount of greenhouse gases we produce and the amount we remove from the atmosphere. We reach net zero emissions when the amount of CO2 we add is no more than the amount we remove. In 2019, the UK government promised in law that Britain would reach net zero by the year 2050. And the plans are ambitious, fully decarbonised electricity by 2035, the end of sales of fossil fuel cars by 2030 and gas boilers by 2035, and fast electrification of transport, industry and heating. But how will net zero change the way we live? We're going to ask, what would a net zero day actually look like? So to give us a picture of what a normal day might be like in the future, we've got three great guests. John Ellidge is a freelance journalist who's going to be our guide to net zero cities, of course. Hello, John.
1: Welcome. Hello. It's nice to be here. I've always wanted to be a city guide, so this is exciting.
0: Yay. <laughs> Bethan Grills is the editor of the New Food magazine, and she's going to be talking us through what our diet is going to look like in a net zero world.
2: Hi, Bethan. Hi, Naomi. I'm planning to make you all very hungry.
0: (laughs) Good. Well, yes. I mean, I have just had a very big lunch, but let's see. I'm sure my uh, taste buds will be tantalised by all the plant-based goodies that we're going to be allowed to have once we're net zero. And finally, we have Andrew Sudmont, who is a research fellow at the University of Leeds, who will take us through the economics of net zero. Welcome, Andrew.
3: Great to be here.
0: So first, we're going to be waking up in the morning, the year 2050, our alarms have gone off. First question, I'm going to go to John, where are we living? What kind of environment are we going to be finding ourselves in by then?
1: So there's there's two answers to this, The uh, which you'll be delighted to hear. The first <laughs> is um, where we would ideally be living and the other is where we will probably actually be living Generally speaking, urban areas produce less carbon than, than more rural ones because the houses, the homes tend to be smaller. They're more closely packed together. So they're easier to heat and your transport is less likely to be reliant on, on a car, which is obviously, uh, well, at the moment anyway, it's obviously pretty bad for, for your emissions and your carbon footprint, but it's also easier to kind of fix things. In cities, you can kind of like, you can make you can make interventions like introducing a public transport network. You can do that in Birmingham in a way you couldn't do it in Cumbria. Or you could draw, you know, heat from, waste heat from other sources and kind of use that, repurpose that to, to heat house and so on. In an ideal world, I think probably a lower carbon world is probably one in which more people are kind of living in, in kind of more urban areas rather than suburban or rural ones. The only problem is I don't really see how we get there from here. The vast majority of homes that we'll be living in in, in 2050, are those which already exist, and when we're, when we're building new ones, we're not generally thinking strategically with things like net zero in mind. It's more about building wherever the, wherever you can get away with it. So quite often at the moment we're building on things like floodplains, which is a measure of quite how 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 far away from where we would like to be we are at the moment <laughs> basically like I I think for us to kind of have like a sort of you know a, a domestic environment that's kind of appropriate for net zero we need a lot more planning than we've got now.
0: See I thought you were going to say the two scenarios are one where we'll be living if COP26 is a success and it means that we can still live on the banks of the River Thames or you know other rivers around the country or the, the one where COP26 fails and we've all had to scramble up the nearest hill. Um. I mean, the other way
1: of answering it is we'll all be living in Waterworld, the, uh, the Kevin Costner film, <laughs> but uh, i prefer not to look
0: too much at that version. Now, Bethan, we're going to wake up and we're going to have decided we're hungry, we're going to get something for breakfast. What, what are the options in the net zero world for that first meal of the day?
2: Okay, so I've got to give you a little bit of background here. So you, you've probably heard people say it before, but... Our food system is broken. We're in the midst of an obesity crisis. Meanwhile, over 900 million people across 93 countries don't have enough food to eat. The answer to fixing this doesn't have a a silver bullet, nor does the solution to, to climate change. You'll see companies say the answer lies in going plant based, others which will promote cultivated meat, and those which will push the gene editing or circular economy agenda. In actual fact, it's going to be a combination and it's going to take collaboration across all stakeholders. I think there's a a tendency to villainise the dairy and meat sector and for people to perceive plant-based as the ultimate solution. Now, I do think it is part of the solution, but what we also need to consider is food miles, the emissions emitted from imports and exports, and also biodiversity. So, Plant-based alternatives to milk, for example, are grown in massive areas of single plant species. So I don't think the full English is going to become extinct. According to the Nature Friendly Farming Network, what will actually happen is we'll eat less but better um, meat from farmers who are using livestock to manage the the landscape for biodiversity and and soil health improvement.
0: Does that make it more expensive? Does that mean that there's a you know the rich people can have their bacon and the poor have to stick with their porridge?
2: See this is the whole catch 22 you know you can't there'll be problems that you that we create solutions for and other problems that arise i do see a, a place for things like cultured meat and and plant based still has an important role so i think you know in terms of our breakfast it's going to be things like maybe your bacon's going to be grown from from animal cells and they are working to to lower these costs while your mushrooms might be a, a variety that you wouldn't ordinarily eat Another thing that we're probably going to see is upcycled food. So that doesn't mean you know food that someone's regurgitated. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was going to say, are oh, we bin diving already?
2: <laughs> but, but rather, food made with ingredients that otherwise wouldn't have been eaten. So think wonky veg, edible stems, leaves, leftover pulp, and and we're also seeing a trend already for for whole cuts.
0: What does that mean?
2: What's a whole cut? So the bones of fish being used to make things like broths, so things that we wouldn't normally, we, generally when we have a, a fish, for example, there's a lot of the product that we just waste. So we'll be seeing us utilizing the whole cut of the fish or the meat, which is going to be really interesting. But yeah, certainly there's, you know, going back to what you said, there is, there is a concern. We're already seeing food prices hike. So there is a concern that with these kind of things that if we move to something like organic farming that maybe it would get more expensive I really don't know what's going to happen and you know I think it's just a case of we're going to have to wait and see. Before we
0: move on from this so you know I've got my nice forage mushrooms for breakfast or whatever (laughs) but you've talked about different ways of consuming but will it also mean a change to our shopping habits is it more likely we'll be shopping little and often rather than a you know, take the car to the out of town supermarket for one big weekly shop?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, during the pandemic, we saw people return to the weekly shops. But now I think people are shopping day by day or for a few days. I mean, I certainly am. And the reason for that is food waste. Food waste is one of the biggest contributors to climate change, you know, and 60% of the food that we waste happens in the home. So I think we, as that becomes more on people's agendas we will start to see people go to maybe a couple of days um we'll also see and we have done already a hike in food delivery kits because it's convenient it means less waste because you only have the ingredients and the measurements you need and it links with the increasing demand for personalized nutrition as well And what we'll also see is people shopping at more independents. So uh, I read a recent report that stated consumers are, are getting quite suspicious of big food brands and receptive to newcomers that kind of espouse this healthier or higher purpose. So I think we'll start to see kind of smaller startups begin to take a larger share of the pie.
0: Brilliant. Maybe a, a return to that kind of mom and pop store thing that's prevailed in, in Asia for, for far longer than it has in the West. Now, Andrew, what are the most interesting developments for net zero living that you've seen, and particularly, I think, from an economic perspective? How are we going to be funding all of this? How's our economy going to have to recalibrate to deliver it?
3: Yeah, that's a a big question. But, you know, it's a really exciting time. There's just a huge amount happening, far more than I could you know cram in here in a in a one minute answer, but there's a, a lot of healthy competition between places and between different uh companies in this area, and there are a lot of things happening that I think should give us a lot of optimism. focusing on on cities in the u k we, we usually focus on London for obvious reasons and great things are happening there. But you also see amazing things happening in other places. In Birmingham, there's a, a transport plan that looks really exciting because it focuses heavily on no, non-motorized transport. In Leeds, in Edinburgh, and Belfast, there are, are climate commissions, which are city-level partnerships that bring together public and private and civic actors. And they're driving action in, in different ways. They're pushing their local councils in Edinburgh and Leeds, uh, the councils have committed to 2030 net zero targets. They're also coming up with really innovative ways to finance action. So they've been working with a company called Abundance. And what Abundance does is it works with private actors who have ideas for climate action. So maybe putting solar panels on a warehouse or uh, a new tidal infrastructure to generate energy or maybe a retrofit plan. And they make it so that individuals like ourselves can support those actions. That's really important because there's this gap between the amount we're spending now on action and the amount that we need to realize to avoid dangerous climate change.
0: John touched on housing earlier. And so I just wondered if you had a view on whether there is any reconciliation we can do between net zero house building and Britain's and I'm speaking about you know a certain demographic of British people that have a, an obsession with seeing their house as a store of wealth for retirement.
3: I just love this question. Maybe, you know, maybe it's just my own sort of nerdy interest, but we've been living in this world of declining interest rates for particularly the last 20 years and I saw recently it was said that interest rates are the lowest they've been in 5,000 years. Wow. (laughs) I don't know how you accurately measure interest rates in ancient Egypt or something. But the point is interest rates are really low, and, and low interest rates drive up the price of assets like housing. But when you look to the future, especially in the context of climate change, I think there are a couple of scenarios. So one is a scenario that doesn't bear thinking too much about, which is where we continue maybe somewhat as we are today which is to say we don't take the level of action that's that's necessary and let's not maybe dwell on that too much because that's a depressing topic but the other is one where we really raise our ambition and if we do that there are a few things we know so we know that that's going to require huge investment and huge utilization of capital and huge demand for resources we know that means new technologies and it means deploying technologies we already have at a scale that we haven't previously. And it also means new forms of employment. It means some changes in our behaviors. It means this wholesale change to our economy. And that's a scenario where interest rates are going to be pushed higher. It's going to be a scenario where productivity is pushed higher. And it's certainly not a scenario where you'd want to have most of your money in a house. Housing in that scenario is going to return to what it's been historically, which is just a terrible investment. And so there's a real risk, I think, especially for members of the middle class who are often by the structure of our economy kind of forced to put a lot of their money into a house. Mm. And yeah, so we, we really need to move away or find a way of supporting a move away from fetishizing home ownership and kind of having all of our money in bricks and Paving stones.
0: Oh, Amen. Now, John, we've had our breakfast. We've panicked over the fact that we're probably not going to be able to repay our mortgage that month due to interest <laughs> rates being at twenty percent. We need to get to work to, to somehow <laughs> feed this debt. What does transport look like? What's taking us there? Presumably, quite different in cities than it will be in rural areas.
1: I'm enjoying the subtext of this entire podcast that I'm still going to be around in 2050. By the way, <laughs> that sounds like a win to me. Um, <laughs> So the government is currently making a big bet on on the rise of electric vehicles, and it's all shifting over to to electric cars i mean it kind of makes sense in that you know it's i i don't know how easy it's going to be to wean um an entire nation off its off its addiction to the car jetpacks, john jetpacks
0: that'll jet packs, wean or, them or,
1: or like those little helicopter things that you get in the, the <laughs> um, well, on the top of a hat <laughs> yeah that'd be great i mean i think like it the electric vehicle thing does kind of make sense but it is in some ways the easier option in the, okay, you've got to, you've got to put in all the charging infrastructure and so on, but that's, that's the kind of thing markets are, are good at. But it feels to me like there is, there is a sort of better version of this, which is we kind of, in, in cities, at least, we kind of like move away from car-based transport altogether. Um, because obviously, you know, it's, it's, you, you're producing much less carbon if you're, if you're, if you're walking or cycling to work or or, or using public transport and most, and it feels like there are some relatively not easy wins, but you know, plausible wins in that most British cities outside London actually have pretty terrible public transport mm. um, and just getting the transport network up in places like in, in Birmingham for example up to to European standards you could improve both quality of life and carbon emissions quite a lot and, and sort of clear a lot of space currently wasted on roads for, for other things as well. The other thing I think we should probably touch on here is it's sort of up in the air how much we're going to be going to offices at all i mean we're still in this kind of weird post-pandemic moment where like we don't know what the balance is going to be between working from home and and working in in you know offices and other workplaces so it's entirely possible that commuting is just going to be a much smaller thing in, in future than it was in the past but then again it's equally possible that the that, that britain's bosses are going to be difficult about this and we're all going to be back <laughs> No.
0: Beth, and talking of transport, a huge part of road traffic now uh, it certainly feels when I look out of my window on a Saturday evening is food delivery, either fresh food, so many different startups entering the market to bring you your groceries, not just the traditional big supermarkets, or for you know hot food delivery, future delivery, Uber Eats, etc. What are the trends there? How do you see that changing if we are thinking about what that looks like in a, a net zero kind of day,
2: we'll probably see drain delivery becoming the norm. Um, so it's going to be a bit like the Bush Tucker Trial during I'm a Celebrity, uh, where your your meals sort of drop to you. Um, but as I,
0: same um, food <laughs> kangaroo butt for breakfast.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean maybe, <laughs> maybe if it's cultured kangaroo butt. <laughs> um, but one, you know, as I said earlier, where one problem is solved another arises. So the challenges there will be that we'll need to look at air safety, we'll need to look at the expense of that. And also, you know, the the cyber security issues that that come with that. Yes, we may very well see drones zipping about, but there is a whole plethora of issues that, that come with that. And what about the
0: change in how we consume seasonally? Do we need to make the most of, you know, these being the last few years where it's acceptable to eat asparagus in the winter and, you know, fly a mango halfway around the world for Christmas day and that kind of stuff, or, or, you know, is there going to be a way that we can grow that more locally?
2: Yeah, I said at the start of this this podcast, I'd make you hungry, but I think think it's more likely that I'm going to make you depressed because there's lots of things that are in danger right now. Asparagus from Peru in November is definitely off the table. We're definitely going to see a return to seasonality, but there's lots of benefits to eating seasonally, um, including the fact it's better for the planet, um, it supports your local community, it's healthier because it's fresher. It tastes better and it and it does actually cost less as well because there isn't all of the 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 importing that you have to kind of facilitate for that being said, it's probably going to be more likely that you will say goodbye to lamb from New Zealand than you know, the asparagus from Peru, simply because vegetables and fruit have a longer shelf life than meat. So whilst fruit and veg can be shipped by the sea, meat has to be flown. And that obviously has a bigger impact in terms of emissions. There are some really interesting uh, innovations happening. We're also seeing manufacturers utilising smart technologies to help with efficiencies. So I mentioned food waste a couple of times. Hellman's uses cameras and, and smart scales to detect how much food they are wasting and identify trends, and that enables them to, to tailor their stock levels accordingly. So I think there's some really exciting innovation coming to the fore. Andrew, back to
0: the daily grind. What kinds of jobs will be left? What will we be doing? Which sectors are likely to boom and decline? What does your research tell you?
3: Yeah, we did some research on this fairly recently and what you find are a couple of things. So the we looked across the UK and we looked at the skills people have because people move between jobs and sectors change. So we don't want to focus just on the, you know, exact position you're in now, but we want to think as the economy changes, how will you be affected? And we find a couple of things. One is that approximately 1 in 5 jobs are kind of exposed to this transition. So that's not to say that the other eighty percent aren't affected across you know our lives and our work. There's going there are going to be a lot of changes, but it's around one in five jobs where the you know skills are going to need to change in a way where the job is really meaningfully affected. And within that, surprisingly, it's about evenly split between those who have skills right now that are really in demand. So they're people who are currently well suited to the way the economy is changing. And then we find that the other half, so 10% or so of people, may need to be upskilled. So that, you know, you can interpret that as that person is sort of at risk. On the other hand, it really is an opportunity. It's it's an opportunity for upskilling people to move from careers they might not be particularly excited about to something that they prefer. The other part of this research is thinking about where these people are currently employed. And what you find is that there are a lot of people in the UK who are very very highly skilled, highly educated people who are very well suited to the green economy, but that are currently in very brown jobs. There's a lot of people in the engineering sector who are helping with oil and gas drilling, have all of these technical skills that we need for uh, working offshore on things like wind turbines or supporting the hydrogen economy. So we need to think about how we can transition people from the jobs they're in now to the jobs that will exist in 5, 10, 20 years into the future.
0: Now, John, even the hardest worker needs to have a think about holidays. And I mean, you know, I'm a workaholic, even I am going to actually take some time off this November. But will holidays be completely out of the question by 2050? Will it just be either for the ultra 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 rich or not at all to be able to leave the UK? A staycation is here to stay.
1: I mean, you'd say the pandemic has been pretty good practice for that, hasn't it? Um, mm. The year in which the first I went was Kent. Um, I mean, you would <laughs> you would you would expect that over time prices for air travel would would go up because. At the moment, we, oil is the only way we know of, of of powering these things over long distances and that that's going to get more expensive and also you'd imagine that over time we would we will be taxing them more. So mm. you would think that people would be would be flying less um, but a couple of things about that. Firstly, a lot of people really don't fly very much now it's actually quite a minority. Uh, as you a minority activity, and I can't remember the exact figures, but something ridiculous like thirty percent of all flights are taken by by five percent of people, or something. It's, right. it's those it's those orders of magnitude. The other thing is, uh, a holiday without a plane doesn't necessarily have to mean like Devon or something. You, mm. It is plausible to get play, uh, to get trains to the south of France or Spain or Italy with just a little bit more investment in the infrastructure we've already got, certainly from the the southeast of England anyway, if we kind of bring back night trains, it becomes plausible from from much greater swathes of the country.
0: I just love those beautiful maps that now don't include the UK at all, but that Europe produces showing all of the beautiful places you can get to on a sleeper train from Paris or Berlin or whatever. And yeah, if only, if only, if only we were part of that network.
1: It is in. It is entirely plausible. Like one of my favourite train journeys in the world is the fact that you know, in in that six and a half hours, you can get on a train in London and get off in Marseille in the south of France, and the Mediterranean glittering ahead of you. That is possible now. So I don't think foreign holidays uh, have to be a thing of the past, even if we're in a kind of net zero world. The the other thing to think about, of course, is that last week the Chancellor of the Exchequer decided to cut duty on domestic flights. So maybe maybe we don't need to worry about these things.
0: So, Bethan, we're drawing to the end of the day. We've had a nice breakfast. We've used our jetpack to get to work at our (laughs) high-end green manufacturing job. We've booked a lovely holiday in the south of France by high-speed rail. That means it's time to make dinner. Um, We've worked up quite an appetite. You've touched on this, saying that we won't need to be completely plant-based, that there are options to, to still have animal product in our diets. Is that, do you think, going to be mostly lab-grown meat? Are there foods that you know we won't know about now that might be on the dinner table? And similarly, will there be foods we enjoy now that definitely will be out of the picture come 2050?
2: Okay, so there was a report called uh, Livestock Always Bad for the Planet. I think it was released today or or very recently and it warns that important decisions about climate mitigation, food systems and land use, including dietary shifts, tree planting schemes, rewilding, risk being based on partial or misleading evidence. So there's arguments that animal source foods are vital for nutrition in low income populations and in places where crop production is not possible. So changes are going to have focus on the most climate damaging production systems. One of the things people don't talk about a lot is plants going extinct, but it does happen. We eat, I think it's 12 crops and five animal species right now. In the future, we're going to have to really diversify our diets, if we're going to be net zero, we're going to have to look at things like intensive farming rather than all farming practices. There is research to suggest that, because right now there's arguments as to whether cultured meat is going to be too expensive or whether that's kind of energy intensive, but there is research to suggest that if it uses renewable energy in its production you know, lab grown meat could compete on costs and have a lower environmental footprint compared to conventional meat production in, in under a decade. One of the other things is GMOs will play a bigger role in our system. So that's um, editing the genes of, of our crops, because what's happening is right now, because of the the, the variable climate, is that they're not robust enough. They're also becoming resistant to the pesticides that we're using on them. So by editing the genes, we'll be able to grow crops that have essentially built-in pest control and are are more robust to to rising temperatures. Um, And in terms of, you also said, you know, kind of foods that maybe won't exist in the future, well, avocados, potentially chocolate no
0: millennials hearts are breaking and <laughs> um, what about what about things that we might eat I mean you mentioned um pesticides there are we going to be eating insects and getting our protein from them
2: oh yeah absolutely insects are a really good source of protein and they're, they're already available you can go you can nip down to, to Sainsbury's or, or you know other other supermarkets are available and, and you can get your your cricket crackers the uptake <laughs> of them aren't so popular now but <laughs> They're not water intensive, they're not land intensive, they're not energy intensive and they still offer really good g- levels of protein. So they are really viable future food. The other things, um, algae, um, we'll be eating algae, we'll be eating things like pumpkin flowers, orange tomatoes, wow. pumpkin leaves. There are 2,000 edible variety of mushrooms we definitely don 't eat two thousand different mushrooms, so we 'll be seeing more variety there we 're also going to be eating hemp because that 's another excellent source of protein uh, and One of my favorites <laughs> um, jellyfish there 's twenty five species of edible jellyfish
0: yummy. Well, th- thank you for that. Now, um, you, you've, you've segued us nicely there from food into entertainment, because I think certain mushrooms and hemp in a different variety can be used to entertain us. Andrew, talk us through you know, our recreational times. We've had dinner. We're going to avoid streaming Season 20 of Squid Game because of the carbon footprint. We want to go out. What does nightlife look like?
3: I genuinely think we're going to be spending a lot more time at the pub in 2050. I also hope that's the case and I'll be hopefully doing my part, but I I genuinely think that for two reasons. The first is that we're going to be a lot more wealthy. So there's this pervasive idea that going zero carbon or generally with environmental issues, there's an idea that there's a a substantial cost attached and and of course making changes to our energy system and to... um, transport systems, these things are going to cost a huge amount of of money or they require investment. but increasingly with the technologies we have and the options available to us, these things provide a really substantial narrow financial return and then beyond that, they generate these wider benefits. So when you shift to cycling from driving your diesel truck, you improve the air quality in a really really minor way, but in a way that benefits the people who live near you. When you insulate people's homes, it's been found that they are less likely to need the NHS because people who live in warmer homes are less frequently sick. Mm. So there's, these, there's this huge opportunity. And I really think that by realizing that opportunity, we'll have more money, which we can then spend on going to the pub or going to a show or what have you. And then there's a second reason why I think we'll be spending more time at the pub, which is that a zero carbon future will push forward an existing trend we see, which is that people are spending more money on experiences and less money on things. So this is something that uh, is naturally happening in our economy. But by pushing this forward, by spending less money on new clothes and uh, other Goods in our homes that that can help us to decarbonize the economy, and that should also mean that we're shifting that expenditure to experiences. So I, I um, yeah, very optimistic about the the future in in this context.
0: Well, I will hope to end the podcast on that optimistic note. Andrew, thank you very much for being on the show.
3: Thanks very much for having me,
0: John. Thank you too. Thank you. And Bethan, thanks so much for uh, giving us an appetite for crickets. You're most welcome. Now, just before we finish, John, you have a new book coming out. Very excited to hear all about it. Give us a quick plug.
1: I do. It's actually all year out. It's called The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. It is a selection of lists and mini essays on anything you can think of that I happen to find interesting in the six months I was locked indoors writing it. So it starts with creation myths and a brief summary of how the universe and and this planet and species actually came to be. Uh, There's stuff in there about how many countries there are in the world. Or the biggest films uh, franchises of all time, uh, some books banned by the Nazis. There's stuff about them, some oddities of large numbers, or some 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 um, hybrid species, and it kind of ends with with climate change, which is very on topic for us. And famous last words. It kind of goes all over the map, and basically, if you're not sure what to buy literally anyone for Christmas, this is the book for you. Thank you. I was
0: going to say, I can literally think of about 10 people that are normally quite hard to buy for that would bloody hoover that up. You may may
1: have seen through our kind of like cunning commercial (laughs) plan. Very much aimed at the Christmas market. But people seem to like it, so...
0: Where's the best place to find it?
1: Uh, all Good Bookshops, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, <laughs> last last I heard there was a stack of them on the, the uh, gift table in Waterstones Piccadilly, but I'm sure it's available in most, most places you can buy books. Well,
0: thank you all for listening to The Bunker, and if you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. We'll be back soon with another edition of The Bunker.
3: The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.